The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. We'll drill down a little further into the book of Romans and into the doctrine of justification by faith. And we should say justification by faith alone. We have been climbing toward chapter 4 for a little more than a year, about a year now. And we found ourselves really at um, the most convincing evidence and proof in the court case that Paul is laying out for justification by faith. We're going to look at the first five verses this morning. Let me read those for you. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith, his faith is credited as righteousness. The most fundamental and basic way that a court case is argued and decided is on precedence. Specifically, having a previous case that you can cite that shows the momentum and the preponderance of evidence that proves the point that you're trying to make in a case. So uh, attorneys have scores of workers and interns and research assistants to help them find cases in the past that help mimic the case being presented both on the offense and the defense that will give the greatest advantage. The more definitive the case, the more convincing the power it has to serve the current case and prove its point. Now, as we've noted, over and over, uh, Romans lays out very much like a court case. It's a court proceeding. Paul is out to both prosecute and defend. He's there to defend the gospel and the truth of the gospel. He's also out to prosecute those who have a false sense of salvation based on their own self-worth, their own understanding of righteousness, and specifically the Jew who held on tightly to his standing before God as one of the chosen ones. As we've noted, it's like a well-laid-out argument. Talk to any attorney, and they almost all have an affinity for the book of Romans. The Christian attorneys do. For two and a half chapters, Paul's been making the case that God saves people on the basis of their believing in him. As we've said over and over, this is just too good to be true. And if, you, if you're starting to feel like, wow, that, that point has been made... We did some sermon mapping, and we're going to be talking about this uh, uh, till Christmas uh, through chapter 4. He continues to pound the gavel on this issue. God saves people on the basis of what he's done for them 
and that they believe that he's done that for them. The primary opponents to this reasoning were the Jews. And we've been looking at the Jews for the first uh, two and a half chapters of this, actually beginning in chapter 2 through chapter 3, and their um, objections, recalcitrance to the gospel. How could God, who chose us, start doing something new and have a new chosen people? What about us? And what about what we believe? They held to their privileged status as God's chosen people. They held to their position and possession of the law. They held to their sign of circumcision that they had done to their infant boys. And they believed that these things, their possession of the law, their position as chosen people, and their sign of circumcision made them, ready for this, right before God. They got a pass before God. They were exempt from God's judgment, which went to everybody except them because they had the law chosen by God and had the sign of the circumcision. So in the early chapters of Romans, Paul uh, continues to pound out, lay out this argument, get this, to them and for the Gentiles. It's really important that we see that this is not just a study in Judaism and confronting and, and, and uh, convoluting Judaism. This is a study in works-based righteousness, which Judaism represented and exemplified. At heart, everyone is a legalistic Jew. Said in another way, in a, in a, uh, from a Christian standpoint, at heart, everyone is a Roman Catholic. Meaning, we add intuition and instinct to thinking that God would not possibly make it so simple, dare I say it, and easy to make a decision to believe what he's done and to be reckoned as righteous before him. It just seems fantastical. No one would make up this kind of scheme. Every religion on the planet except Evangelical Christianity believes that you have to do better and try harder to be good enough to earn some kind of position after, in the afterlife. So this argument against the Jews is really something we should be able to identify in our own selves. God justifies sinners by grace through faith. The righteousness we need is his righteousness. We keep saying this over and over, but... It can't be repeated enough. You, you have to be perfect to go to heaven. You have to have God's righteousness, which matches his righteousness, to be able to interact with him, or his holiness will incinerate us. We can't attain that kind of righteousness. So God has made a way and a provision by which he can declare a sinner righteous for believing what he's done in the gospel. We need righteousness from God to be in the right with him, and it comes from God and is in no way connected to our own effort. That's what we've been studying, and so now we come to chapter 4. Last week we looked uh, pretty uh, seriously at Abraham. We'll come back to a lot of that narrative in this chapter. But Abraham was significant. Abraham was the most significant name in the Old Testament from the standpoint of progeneration. The Jews said, we are sons of Abraham. They referred to Abraham, our father. Even in Galatians, as we'll see just in a few weeks, those of us who believe in the gospel, God actually calls true sons of 
Abraham. Why? Because we hold to justification by faith and faith alone. So Paul says, I need to tell you what justification by faith is about by showing you that it wasn't invented on my watch. Abraham then is the most surprising illustration, at least to the Jews, of justification by faith alone. I mean, think about this. If you're a Jew and you're sitting in your position in the synagogue and you're listening to Paul talk and argue, he always went to the synagogue first when he went into a a city, and you're listening to him argue and he's telling you about the gospel and you're going, ah, I don't know. First of all, I don't believe that he's the Messiah. Secondly, God wouldn't save by, by not doing anything and just believing something. And then Paul says, oh, and by the way, this is the way God always has saved. And the proof of that is your father, Abraham. They would have choked on their bagels. So, look at this text. And I want to find with you two surprising features of the doctrine of justification by faith. These would have been a shock to a Jewish mind and still are a shock to those of us who know biblical history. Two surprising features of the doctrine of justification by faith. The first thing that would surprise the Jews who would be listening to Paul preach and reading Paul in this, in this uh, epistle would be this. It's an ancient doctrine. This goes way back. Now, before we get to Abraham, let's go halfway between here and Abraham. Turn back for a moment to Habakkuk. Or if you're in Australia, Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 2. Basically, go to Matthew, take a left, four, chapter, four books, and you're there, okay? Habakkuk lays out what Paul quotes in Romans 1 as the grounds for the idea that God justifies people on the basis of faith. But look at the, look at the theological pinnings of this, and then we'll jump from here back to Abraham. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not justified, right, not, it's not not guilty, it's guilty within him. But the justified, the righteous, live, exist, move, operate, exercise by faith. Paul picks up on that in Romans 1.16 and says this is the This is the launching point of my understanding of how God saves people. There's two basic distinctions in this verse. There's a proud one who looks at himself and tries to be right before God with his own works and self-based righteousness. And there's the one who lives by faith. Doesn't live by sight, especially sight of what he can see in his own heart and life, but by faith in what God has done. This is not new. This was grounded in the book of Habakkuk, obviously. But even more so, Abraham is drawn up as an example. Looking at the fact that it's an ancient doctrine, first we see Abraham himself, Abraham was not justified by works. Back to Romans 1. 
Romans 4. What shall we say then that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? He says, okay, I've been explaining justification by faith with you and for you for a couple of chapters. What, what was Abraham about? How did Abraham get saved? Paul's continuing with his questions. He began back in chapter 3. There's a series of questions, and he's doing exactly what a lawyer would do. A good attorney anticipates the objections and answers them before they're asked. Before a jury or judge can run down a trail of objection in the mind, Paul the lawyer anticipates those questions, asks them and answers them before they're even formulated. The Jew would have obvious and significant questions about what Paul has been teaching and gets ahead of, Paul gets ahead of them and says, let me just head you off at the pass. He begins with an inference to the previous statement in chapter 3, verse 29, that God is the God of the Jews as well as the Gentiles. That would be a bone in their throat coming into chapter 4. Wait a minute. God is our God. Abraham is our father. They had this idea that they owned God. That they were the only ones right on the planet. Here's the challenge of that. They were, theologically, But God intended for them to take the understanding of who he was, the regulations he gave in the law, what he expects, and to spread those throughout the whole world. They were supposed to be evangelists, and instead they became introverted and proud. The legalistic Jew believed that Abraham was justified by works of the law. One thing to note is that Abraham lived before the law. had an interesting discussion with a Jewish gentleman on a plane one time about Abraham's observance of the law. And I said, well, how was that? How did that work out? Because Abraham lived before Moses, before the law came into existence. And he says, well, the law was written on his heart. I said, that's very interesting. Did you know that the law is written on the Gentile's heart too? And I went to Romans and... Chapter 2, and uh, he said, I've never seen that before. Then he wanted to not talk anymore. The Talmud, I don't know if you know what the Talmud is. The Talmud it was, a, was a document external to the law that was kept on equal par with the law. It was basically elders' opinions. It was like a commentary on and about the law, which even added extra laws. The Talmud was, was an authoritative document uh, at the time of... Jesus and Paul, and the Talmud actually says, deducing from Genesis 26.5, get this, that Abraham actually obeyed and observed the entire Mosaic law. That's quite a statement. The point is, whether, they, the, whether that's true or not is secondary to the fact that they thought Abraham was, he was the bomb He was the guy who obeyed in every way. He was the example. He was the one from whom all example of godliness flowed. And as we've studied before, Abraham was revered beyond anyone save Moses in the Jewish faith and still is to this day. They still talk about Father Abraham and we are children of Abraham. So... To make the irrefutable point that Paul wants to make, he cites 
Abraham, which would have had the greatest weight? One of the most interesting features of Jesus' interaction with the Jewish leadership was on the subject of Abraham. Now, we need to take a sidebar for a minute. Turn over to John chapter 8. This is a a lengthy section, but we have to deal with this in looking at Romans chapter um, 4. Jesus' interaction with the Jewish leadership eventually came to a head over Abraham. Who is Abraham? What did he do? And who are the true children of Abraham? Let's pick up the interaction in verse 30. He is, he's been talking about, in John chapter 8, he's been talking uh, to the Jews about being uh, uh, crucified, raised from the dead. He's the true ch- uh, son of God, and they were, they were having pushback on him. They were um, doubting him. But we find out something in verse 30. As he spoke these things, many actually came to believe in him. Many were saying, Hang on a second. This guy sounds like no one else we've ever heard. John Elsewhere says, he speaks as one with authority different than anyone else has spoken. So, Jesus was saying to those Jews, put in quotation marks, who had believed him. It wasn't a salvific belief. We'll find out why in a minute. He says to them, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. There's the definition of a Christian right there. To believe the truth about Jesus and to walk in his word. You will know the truth. The truth will make you free. They answered, we are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus was obviously talking about free from their sins and free from the traditionalism that they were trapped in. And they were saying, no, we're not slaves to anybody. Why? Because we're children of Abraham. We're the chosen race, the promised people. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever So if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. You are racially Jews, but you haven't got what the law was intending to predict, which is me. I speak the things uh, which I have seen with my father, therefore you also do the things which you have heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, If you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. You say you belong to Abraham? Act like it. (laughs) These were wicked men trying to kill a prophet for whom they could attribute no sin. But as you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God... This Abraham did not do. Now this gets interesting. You are doing the deeds of your father. And they said to him, we are not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Now, do you hear the jab in there? What are they saying to him? They're saying, we we know you Nazarene. 
We know that your mother was pregnant with you before she was married. We know that you're the son of fornication. Wow. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't defend himself. By the way, I was born of the Holy Spirit. It was the virgin birth. And he could have done a whole diatribe on the virgin birth. He doesn't even go there. Why? I don't think it would have mattered. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, ouch, if God were your father, you would love me. Why? For I proceed forth and come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he has sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. Now, remember back when these Jews said they believed in him, they believed him, The same group of Jews, he says this to in verse 44. You are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. They wanted to murder him, obviously. And does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? I speak truth. Why do you not believe me? How would you like to try to corner someone who'd never sinned? You know what they end up accusing him of? Claiming to be God. He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them because you are not of God. Boy, that's straightforward, Jesus. The Jews answered and said to him, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? You're, you're not, they, they weren't saying you weren't Jewish. They were just saying, you're not from Jerusalem. You're not from the elite religious class. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. But I did not seek my glory. I'm not the issue here. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died? The prophets too died. Whom do you make yourself out to be? You know what Jesus was saying? Abraham did not have the power of resurrection He believed God for Isaac's resurrection, but that's another story. He's dead. And Jesus is talking about giving and granting eternal life, which Abraham could not and never did. And they're saying, you're claiming to be greater than Abraham? Jesus answered, I glorify myself. My glory is nothing. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me of whom you say, he is our God. And if you've not come to know him, but I know him, And if I say that you do not know him, I will be a liar like you, but I do not know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Very interesting. And he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, I mean, Jesus is claiming to know what, what Abraham knew. Hang on, time out, they blow a whistle. 
The Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and you're quoting Abraham? You've seen Abraham? You can speak for Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. It wasn't time for him to die, so Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. What's going on here? Jesus is saying, look, Abraham is the key. Abraham is the fulcrum. Abraham is the father. Abraham has to be reckoned with. But you have entirely misinterpreted Abraham, and because you've misinterpreted Abraham, you've misinterpreted me. Why? Because Abraham had a son of promise, did he not? That son of promise was to be the one through whom God would bless the world, was he not? And that was to be ultimately through the Davidic line and be king of the earth, the Messiah, Jesus. So he, Paul says, you know, this, this whole Abraham thing has some rich history in the Old Testament, but also has some conflicted history here in the New. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. The gospel, the gospel is bigger than just Father Abraham. Let's go back to Romans now. With that in mind, the understanding that the Jews had of Abraham, the way they revered him. Before we leave there, by the way, how did Abraham see his day? Let me answer that in two ways. We don't know everything that God told Abraham that wasn't recorded. We just don't know. But we do know that God told him enough about the promise being satisfied through Isaac that he rejoiced to see his day. Paul goes on in verse 2. For if Abraham was made right, justified by what he did, something he worked at, the law he obeyed by works, then he has something to brag about and boast about. But I'll tell you what, it's not before God. Here's the idea. If Abraham could have been justified by works, it could only be at a human court level. He could perhaps brag that he was better than Lot, better than the Pharaoh. But it can also be understood to say this. If Abraham, according to the natural prejudice of the Jews, really had been justified by works, which is the most obvious view, then he had a reason to boast, even before God. Look at what I did, God. Surely you would accept me. Don't forget this. The Jews held that Abraham obeyed the entire Mosaic law. Have you read Genesis? Remember in Genesis 12, Abraham and Sarai conspired to lie to the Pharaoh and say, don't tell him you're my wife, you're too pretty. He'll kill me to get you. Tell him, watch this, watch this logic. Tell him you're my sister so then he can have you and keep me alive. That's good husbandly leadership right there. Not only that, he and Sarai doubted God that, that he would fulfill his promise. So they went out and did the whole scheme with Hagar. Abraham was no saint. Justified, yes. Made righteous, yes. Declared holy, yes. But a saint without sin, no way. You cannot read the biblical narrative of Abraham and conclude that he was justified by his works. Abraham was a sinner just like you and me, and the text proves it. But also, 
looking at the ancient nature of the doctrine, look at the fact that Abraham not only was not justified by works, but he was justified, shockingly, by faith. Verse 3 tells us this. This is the most definitive statement in the whole Bible about the nature of justifying faith that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. What does the Scripture say? Can we just stop right there? Don't you love Paul? Don't you love Paul? When he wants to make a point, when he wants to make the case, he says, the Bible says. He was an expositor. He knew his authority was ultimately linked to the authority of God's word, of of Scripture. When he wants to make a point, he goes to the authority. Scripture says, what does the Scripture say? It tells us this in Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God. He had faith in God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. He provides a true representation of Abraham in accordance with Scripture, not the false view of the Jews that he was somehow perfect and obeyed the law in every way. It points back specifically, quoting Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. His handling of this this text, by the way, will come back in verse 22. But right here, Paul's uh, affirming that justification by faith is not only ancient, but it's actually rooted in Abraham himself. It's critical to remember that faith is not a work. You'll hear people, people argue with you, well, well, believing is a work, it's something you do. You would never believe unless God made you believe. Never. Why? Because Ephesians 2 says you're dead. Your trespasses and sins. 1 Corinthians 2, the spiritual man appraises the things of God. The unspiritual, the natural man cannot appraise or understand the spiritual things that come from God. Then we come to this workhorse of a word, lagizomai, credited, imputed. It's used nine times in the book of, excuse me, in chapter 4 of Romans. Nine times. It means imputed, credited, Put to your account financially. It's used in legal context and financial context. It means to take something that belongs to one account, take it, and credit it to another account. That's what logizomai means. And as we've said, it's got two, two nuances. Erasure and credit. Justifying grace at one moment because of the sacrifice of Christ on behalf of sinners, erases sin in heaven's account. Pays our debt. Don't you love Colossians 3? Nails our certificate of debt, what? To the cross. It takes it away, but it's even better than that. It also credits us. It puts in the bank of of our uh, account with God righteousness, how much righteousness, uh, how, how much goodness, how many works? No, no. Jesus' righteousness. <laughs> the righteousness of God in Christ. It's not just that you, I heard an illustration recently, it's not just that you owe you know, a billion dollars and it's paid off, it's after that you're given all the money of the world in your account. Your debt is paid off and you get everything. That's what credit means, imputation means. And it's important to keep going over this because it's just such a a major difference to talk about when you're evangelizing Catholic friends 
Infusion is not imputation. Infusion it means to make someone righteous, to infuse righteousness into them. Therefore, now that righteousness is in the person, they're responsible to work out that righteousness to keep and to exhibit their justifying position before God. My question to everyone who believes that is, how's that worked out for you? Do you still sin? Well, let's go back to Abraham for a minute. He's justified. He keeps doing all these. He's lying. He's lying to, to Pharaoh. He's, he's uh, taking God's work into his own hands. He's, God credited his account in heaven. Now, remember, we're going to get to this. Faith alone saves, but it is a faith that is not alone. Works follow. They do not cause Justification. Abraham was justified by his faith. Look at the text there. He believed God. You know what God said? Because you believe me, I'm going to now put your credit in heaven as absolutely not guilty and righteousness and righteous. I hope that you hear that and think, that just doesn't, I don't know, that sounds kind of odd. That, that sounds too good to be true. There's got to be more to it than that. And if you feel that way, that's called worship. Where you say, I, I, it's all God. So the first surprising feature of the doctrine of justification by faith is it's ancient. It's rooted in Abraham. It goes all the way back to Genesis 15, 6. Secondly, it's a contemporary doctrine. Not just back there. Paul changes, back to Romans chapter 4 now, Paul changes the tense in the verbs uh, beginning in chapter uh, 4, verse um, 4. And he's talked about Abraham and past tense. Now he says to the one. Now he's talking about the man now, the one who works. It's a contemporary doctrine. Now he's transferring the illustration of Abraham into our context. So he talks about us. And in his argument, we find out first that no one now can be justified by works. Just as no one ever could have, no one now could be justified by works. And let's just take a pause again to make sure we know that justified means to be made righteous, to be declared not guilty. We use justified in a different way in English today. When you see the word justified, just think made perfect, made righteous, declared Absolutely not guilty in heaven. Verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited or granted, imputed, there's our workhorse again, as a favor or as a grace, but what is due. This spells out a general principle. If a person works, he's due remuneration. That's fair. You work, you get paid. You work, you get paid. What is owed to him because of his work is a debt from the employer to the employee. Therefore, his payment could never be considered as being according to grace. I mean, have any of you, uh, think of your first job. You know, did, did, did you ever get your first check and say, thank you for giving this to me for nothing? You understood, I had to work 40 hours to get this. You understand that work receives remuneration, it receives credit. If 
Salvation is granted by God for work done by a person, then it's not grace. It's a payment. That's Paul's point. Yeah. Do you think God is like the giant bank of heavenly monopoly? And because you landed on the right spot and did the right thing and rolled the right dice, he's going to pay you now in the currency of heaven? No, Paul's saying that's not the case. If salvation is granted by God for work done, it's not grace, it's a payment. So the question is, let's just push that out. Let's say that for a second, God did work on that payment plan. Who could ever do enough to earn perfection in heaven? The wages of sin is death. Nowhere does it say the wages of work is heaven. Salvation, justification, and grace do not have a price by which they can be bought. That's offensive to the human pride. It's offensive. When we come to God, we come empty. Nothing to offer. Nothing we can point to to say, God, look at me. Fact. Luke, Jesus says, there was a guy who actually did that. Remember? A couple of guys go to the temple. Lord, I'm so thankful that I'm this and that and the other and I'm not like him. This other guy is beating on his chest and saying, forgive me, I'm a sinner. We'll come back to this text in a few weeks. Jesus says, that man went down to his house, what? Justified. It's a contemporary doctrine. No one now, not just in the past, can be justified by works. And also, the one who now believes can be justified by faith. Tell you what, do you underline verses in your Bible? Do you circle them? Do you highlight them? Do you put them on cards? Do you memorize them? Do you put them on your bathroom mirror and on your car dashboard? Please, this verse, this verse, this verse sings your life's chorus if you're a believer. But to the one who does not work, the point is the one who's not trying to earn God's favor by what he does, but believes in him, it's hard to read, who declares righteous the ungodly. That faith is credited to that person now as absolute holy righteousness and perfection in heaven's court. I want to ask you a trick question. Have you ever personally witnessed a miracle? Be careful. Have you ever personally witnessed a miracle? I'm not talking about God bringing back an ant from the, from the brink of death. That could have been miraculous. But have you seen a supernatural, verifiable, undeniable miracle in your life? This dirt verse describes a verifiable, undeniable, inconceivable, supernatural miracle. What is it? God would make righteous the unrighteous by what he's done by crucifying his son and raising him from the dead. 
He justifies. He makes. Look at the antinomy here. He makes right the ungodly. Do you think he chose that word because he had no other vocabulary? Ungodly, the entire anti-God disposition. He makes right before him. Unbelievable. It's not based on works. It's based, look at the text, on faith. Him who believes. We have to peek. We have to peek across the page at, page at Romans chapter 5. Same word is used for while we were still helpless. At the right time, Christ died for who? The ungodly? Verse 8 tells us that that's not the way that people love. God demonstrates his love differently. We might die for a righteous man, a nice guy. Jesus died for the ungodly. By the way, the Jew would have balked at that idea that they were in any way ungodly. We meet our word imputation again. He credits, imputes righteousness based on our believing him. Jesus said in Luke 5, 32, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Aren't you glad for that? Now let me turn the key for just a second on a practical nuance of this that might be something that, uh, that would not be apparent at first reading of this text. I think we all say amen, we love this, we believe this, we can't, we can't fathom it, we're so glad it's true. But when you struggle, if you're genuinely a believer, and you struggle with your assurance of salvation, when you're afraid and you have fear that God has not really done this and that you're really at, at odds with him and your, your faith and your belief in the gospel haven't really saved you, listen to the words of John Flavel. One of my favorite Puritan authors, he says this. Sinful fear arises from unbelief. Now, turn that on his head. The righteous will live by faith. Unbelief causes fear. Sinful fear arises from unbelief. An unworthy distrust of God. This occurs when we fail to rely upon the security of God's promise. In other words, when we refuse to trust in God's protection. Even a believer can exercise that pride described in Habakkuk 2.4. Even a believer can exercise that same pride by turning around and saying, well, God, I mean, God wouldn't save me. There's no way I'm saved. There's no way, think about what you're saying. Listen to the lie that we're telling ourselves. There's no way that God's grace is big enough for me and this. Now, it's possible that a person is not really a believer and that sinful proclivity, that sinful inclination is rising so that God can show you your sin and you can repent. But be careful of the expectation that God has really infused you with righteousness. And that you're surprised by sin after you're a believer. We should hate it. We should repent of it. But we should never be surprised by it. What did John tell us? If we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and, you know what that word is? Righteous. Just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from how much? All unrighteousness. In that same passage, this has been such an encouragement to me uh, in my own soul over the year. He says in 1 John 1, 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Satan uses doubt and sin to make us think that God is not faithful to justify the ungodly by believing what he's done. And that's the old illustration that, well, if you fall in the pool, you might as well swim. Well, if I'm a sinner, I might as well sin. I don't know. Don't listen to that whispering serpent. When you find yourself falling in sin and doubting whether or not you could be saved by grace through faith, repent and give God glory for saving you from that and forgiving you for that. Sinful fear, Flavel says, arises from unbelief. This passage is intended to bolster our faith and to bolster our belief. Please don't let justification by faith be a curiosity and a kind of a trivial thing that we study on Sundays and say, wow, Paul's talking about this a lot for like four chapters. I wish he'd move on. He keeps pounding the gavel of this argument because he knows we get it and walk away. We get it and walk away. We get it and walk away. Don't walk away. Be freshly amazed that God did it and you can't contribute anything. Now, if you're smart and you're a good biblical theologian, you would say, well, what about sanctification? And what about living out our our faith? Chapter 7 and 8, we're going to get there. But don't hijack and smuggle your sanctification back into your justification. Let justification have its rule in your theology. Let's bow together. All of this is because of the cross. It's where we boast. We don't pride ourselves in ourselves. Our glory is entirely in who Jesus is and in what he has done. We're going to sing a closing song that's a proper soul response to this passage. Afterwards, our prayer room will be open to my right. Uh, Mike and Christy Walsh will be there. We'd love to talk to you about your soul, pray with you, carry a burden with you. This is why we're here. If there's any way we can serve you, please, please let us do so. Father, Help us to glory in the fact that Christ has done it for us in the cross, on the cross. It's not up to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.